Welcome to Cardio Radio, a podcast of the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative, also known as Cardio. This is Dr. Michael Constan from the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine, and I serve as the principal investigator for Cardio, a statewide network of Ohio's seven medical schools. Cardio is funded by the Ohio Department of Medicaid and shares best practices to improve cardiovascular health, diabetes outcomes, and to eliminate health disparities in Ohio's Medicaid population. The opinions and recommendations in this podcast are those of the presenters and not those of Cardio and its sponsors, and are not intended to be a substitute for medical advice. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Mintz. My pronouns are they and she. I'm an internal medicine pediatrics doctor here in Cleveland, Ohio at Metro Health Hospital's Pride Clinic, and I'm an assistant professor at the Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and a member of Cardio's Team Best Practices. I'm also a disabled person, and today you'll hear perspectives from me and two others with different disabilities from different backgrounds diagnosed at different times in their lives. I'm so excited to have this conversation with my two guests who are patients who we take care of at Metro and incredible friends and community members to me. John Greiner is an illustrator and comic book creator whose work includes a comic series that discusses the real-life challenges of being a disabled person. He uses he-him pronouns. Ethan Young, whose pronouns are they and them, is a local artist with cerebral palsy, autism spectrum disorder, and chronic pain who works to make the world better, safer, for the next generation. Today, we're going to talk about language use when caring for disabled populations then review the impact of disability on cardiometabolic health and share some of the challenges we face as disabled patients navigating the healthcare system. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's talk. Uh, before we get started, we made the real specific decision to use identity first language, meaning I call myself a disabled person, not a person with a disability. A lot of people with disabilities advocated in the early 90s to make person-first language the standard, so a person with autism rather than an autistic person. And lots of medical environments operate that way as well. Ethan, do you want to share your perspective about this issue? Yeah. Um, disabled activists have said that that really didn't work because our disabilities are part of the entirety of our humanities because of the way our world is structured, just like race, gender, sexuality, Etc. Mm -hmm. It's also a way for disabled people to challenge people that are currently not disabled to think about how our experiences are specific because of our disabilities. This is called the human rights model of disability. Thanks. John, I'd love to hear what you have to say. For people listening along, it's important to use the language that the person in front of you is using. Plenty of disabled people are uncomfortable with this model. So some people like being people with diabetes or autism instead of diabetic or autistic. That's totally fine. It's funny because a lot of non-disabled people get stuck on this. Totally. I've had people correct my self-described language like real self-righteously. Just call people what they want to call themselves. So we're set on language. Let's talk about what some of the research has shown about disabled people and cardiometabolic disease. John, what do we know about disabled people and risk for heart disease? Well, long story short, Increased risk of heart disease has been described uh, in people with intellectual disabilities, including learning disabilities and mental health disabilities, uh, with physical disabilities, and with all kinds of progressive disabilities. The population that all of us come from, with spinal cord injury, with cerebral palsy, with multiple sclerosis, with ADHD, with depression, with autism, 
all of our communities are at a higher risk. Wow. So, Ethan, tell me, how about diabetes? Well, it's a similar story. There's more diabetes in people with all kinds of disabilities that make movement and exercise more physically difficult, but also conditions like bipolar disorder and others that don't obviously affect diabetes risk, but are consistently higher rates in disabled people. I've had cerebral palsy and autism my whole life. And over time, I got diagnosed with a lot of different mental health conditions and put on a lot of medications that caused other problems. And being transmasculine and black only made this harder. It took a long time to find professionals who understood what I was trying to communicate. Um, and as a black transmasculine person over 60, all of those parts of myself made it even harder. I hurt myself as a teenager and uh, have a high-level spinal cord injury, which means that I don't have any physical sensation in most of my body. But I got hurt back when people could really get the rehab they needed, so I've been able to use a manual wheelchair and be independent in ways that a lot of people that get hurt now don't get that time to do. Again, back with insurance agreeing that you need what you need. Uh, I did this as an angry teenage kid, uh, it also has been a whole journey. Yeah, for me, I had ADHD and depression as a kid. Uh, I did get diagnosed and treated with the depression. And then when I was 30 and I was on the way to medical school, I had my first symptoms of multiple sclerosis and then was diagnosed then. And then later down the road with ADHD. You know, most of the time my disabilities are invisible. And to be honest, I hid things as much as I could while I was training and this is, I think, the first time I'm actually telling people that I have MS in any kind of public way. But people say what they think about disabled people when they don't think that they're looking at one of us. And so the fact that my disabilities are invisible a lot of the time has been kind of an advantage in sense that it's given me a lot of insight about how others interact with people who are disabled and also how being disabled impacts the people who are coming to see me every day. Can I talk about masking? Absolutely. Go for it. So masking is a thing that describes, well, putting on a mask for the world to act normal. A lot of times, autistic people often use stimming to keep themselves relaxed and okay. Repetitive motions or words or fidgeting or noises, different sounds. Lots of autistic people are sensitive to things that non-autistic people don't notice, like sound or light. And it can be really overwhelming and hard to make people understand. So when you see someone acting in a way that you don't understand, you can just think that person is taking care of themselves. John, you know, how did you think those initial diagnoses as a teenager and your injury influence your experiencing accessing healthcare over time? Well, when, when you have a disability that you haven't always had, you sort of have to become a patient. You have to figure out how to get to a doctor, which doctors you need to go to, who you can ask for support like physical therapy or help at home if you need it. Then you learn how to deal with health insurance and how to pay for stuff. No one knows how to do this, but it is even harder when you are also trying to deal with your internal feelings and the fear and all the rest. It's a crazy experience. <laughs> yeah, you kind of can't describe it, right? Um, and it's so easy to make mistakes, right? 
And unfortunately, if you don't have help, those mistakes can get really expensive. One of the things that increases the risk for heart disease is that it's really expensive to be disabled. Ethan, you know, tell us about reasons why disability is so expensive. You have to, first you have to figure out what you need to function, like canes or walkers, glasses, and different tools. Um, sometimes those things get paid for by insurance if you have insurance, but a lot of times they're not covered. The things that are not covered by insurance work better for your, for your body. Um, so you have to make a decision as to whether you're going to get the covered wheelchair or whether you want to pay out of pocket for one that really works best for you. Lots of times insurance doesn't agree that you need what you need. So people that don't have a quote unquote qualifying condition have to fundraise and pay out of pocket so we can keep our homes and cook and work and have fun, make art and do all the things other people can, can do in a way that is adapted to our capabilities. Yeah. Then you have to find housing that's accessible and that's more than making sure there's a ramp outside of the apartment, but also are the doors wide enough to get your chair through uh, so you can go to the bathroom? Are the countertops accessible? What are about the cabinets? Do you have to buy your own mattress so you can sleep okay and get in and out of it? Uh, If you have sensitivities to heat, like people with nerve injuries are, do you have air conditioning? Do you need modifications to drive a car? What happens when the car breaks? And then there's employment. Lots of disabled people can't work full time for a whole bunch of reasons. And like me and those of us that can, I will tell you that employers and schools make it tough to get absolutely legal and covered work accommodations. I have to fill this stuff out for myself and lots of my patients, and it is absurd more often than it's not. Well, one of the most common myths is that a person can just get on disability in in uh, air quotes uh, uh, if they are disabled. Uh, and they will be able to live, you know, absolutely not. Most people have to appeal multiple times before they get a hearing here in Cleveland. They have, they held uh 3,174 hearings last year, only 47% of which were approved. One of my comic series tales to demystify. Uh, it explains a lot of the reality of the day-to-day disabled life. Okay. And so now you got to go to the doctor. So let's talk about what happens when you try to access healthcare. Yeah, the first thing is, well, can you physically get there? If you use a, a wheelchair, um, what happens when the buses, for no reason, don't have working chairlifts or they don't come? Then healthcare co- providers will label you as a no-show or non-compliant, even when you leave your house hours before you had to get. Yeah, then once you're there, can you get on the exam table? Do they have a chair you can transfer to? If you're a larger person, can you sit comfortably in that chair? Is there a bathroom you can get to and use if you need to? And, I mean, we just said all this stuff, right? It all piles up. It all has a cost, like a literal cost, a physical cost, an emotional cost. And I'll tell you as a doctor, you know, all of us doctors are human beings. And so we carry whatever attitudes into clinic that we have in the world. Um, Dr. Lisa Iazzoni, who's one of my disabled doctor heroes, has done a ton of research about the attitudes of doctors and doctors in training. And in a recent paper, 45% of primary care physicians said they didn't feel fully confident in their ability to take care of a disabled person. Whoa. 
that is bananas. I mean, most of us become disabled eventually, and all of us need a good primary care doctor. Yes, primary care doctor. I agree. <laughs> and the, the same biases that doctors have are the same ones that the world has, which means that being disabled can be really isolating. Lots of people really don't see us as, well, you know, really as real human beings. One of the things that I've seen in a different way than the two of you is how becoming disabled as an adult really changes relationships. I most definitely found out who the people were who were really going to show up for me, who really wanted to be in my life, and those who wanted me to be in their life as much as it didn't make them uncomfortable. I'm real fortunate that I was already around a bunch of other disabled people when I got diagnosed. So that transition, it was still really hard, but it was way easier than a lot of people have it. One of the things that I try to support my patients with is really figuring out and helping people through that shift and in being real about the loss that comes with it. Being in a chair changes relationships. It changes dating and romance. It changes how people respect you or don't. And lots of disability experiences aren't really something that you can understand if you don't live with it. And that makes people uncomfortable. You know, I kind of learned how to be disabled from other disabled people. My doctors really didn't know too much. And, you know, that's, it's sort of a, you got to live it to get it. And so if people are really isolated and don't know other disabled people, then that adds another layer to the difficulty, which is that you don't get any support about how to figure out how to get the stuff you need and be yourself. And that cost, you know, that, that isolation, those functional changes that sometimes can make it so you just ignore problems that are going on with you because the hassle of getting them dealt with is harder than just toughing it out. Uh, but of course, that means that sometimes problems that are a lot worse by the time people actually get to a doctor. Another reason why we have the disparities that we have about heart disease and diabetes. A lot of the data says that being disabled is more common in communities that have other marginalized identities. So being black or indigenous, another person of color, being a woman, being an LGBTQ plus person, being poor, being an immigrant, it all adds together, right? Anything piles on top to make that more challenging. The internet isn't all good, but it definitely has made it easier, a lot easier for to connect with people that are like you and reduce some of the isolation. Don't knock connections people can make online. Doesn't always do everything people need, but can really help when things are hard. Can we talk about COVID for a second? Oh, yeah. Besides losing so many friends, family, and loved ones, it's also a mass disabling event. So more and more people are living with new illnesses and figuring that out. Yeah, I'm on immunosuppressive meds uh, for my MS, so I still wear a mask in clinic. And genuinely, it's been so terrible to have people be so hostile about doing something that might save my life because it's a minor inconvenience. To me, it says a lot about how much we care about the lives of disabled people, right? I want people to think about the phrase, quote, it's only causing death in immunocompromised people and older people means to someone that's immunocompromised. Or older or both. I want everybody to think about that, but especially want doctors and hospitals and healthcare to think about it. Actually, let's wrap this up with what the primary care providers and others listening along can think about to prevent and treat heart disease and diabetes with disabled people. Well, we're people. 
We are the experts of our own bodies. Believe us when we tell you things that and take our lead about what we are comfortable talking about. And if people have impairments related to communication, deafness, non-speaking, blindness, etc., uh, they are just as intelligent and human as anyone else. Respect us as full human beings. And people with mental illness. And it's really important to address the mental health of disabled people. And those other basic needs. So one thing, one resource is that the Cardio website has some great tools. So they have some handouts and resources about home exercise for people with disabilities and addressing social determinants of health uh, with disabled communities. And this is a time where it makes a lot of sense to really build team-based care. If there are ways to make it automatic to get people in after they've left the hospital, even if it's just a phone call to make sure they've got whatever they need, it can prevent hospital readmissions and solve problems when it's easy rather than when it's a whole lot harder. A good social worker, a great counselor, wraparound support from nurses, direct linkages to resources like insurance or food or housing, all those critical things everyone needs and that being disabled makes it hard to access. This can make healthcare costs lower for people, but most importantly, these things save people's lives. A shout out to all those people that have helped all of us take care of ourselves, our relatives, and each other. Yeah, I agree. Community support is so important. I'd like to reiterate for the providers in the audience the importance of asking your patients about their preferred language use and working with your patients and teams to ensure disabled patients are getting the care they need, are connected to resources that work for them, and some resources and tools are available to you, our listeners, at the Cardio website. I really would encourage you as you are, you know, as your teams are working to build referrals that every single referral asks about disability and asks about accessibility specifically. Uh, And I just thank you so much for being here to talk with me today. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. Uh, I enjoyed our conversation. And a special thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to Cardio Radio. This concludes today's podcast. Be sure to visit cardio.org to learn more about the Ohio Cardiovascular and Diabetes Health Collaborative.